Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Today on Breaking Banks, I'm joined by Joe Yagadish, Executive Vice President, Head of Corporate Products, Services, and Innovation at TD Bank. Thanks to Derek Sutton at Autobooks for introducing us at AOBA for an amazing conversation around centering our design efforts on customers, even when they're corporate customers, and the importance of thinking small and then scaling large. A fascinating purview into TD's innovation journey. Joe, thanks for joining me. And I don't often start with somebody's title is a first question, but this head of corporate products, services, and innovation. I'm used to seeing corporate products, corporate services, products and services, product innovation, but not necessarily product services and innovation put together. And I can't help but think that is intentional and not, in fact, an accident. How do those words come together in terms of what it means for your role and your mission within TD? Yeah, well, in a nutshell, if you think about the life cycle of new product development, the subsequent commercialization of it, um, and the third leg of it, which is the implementation, the servicing, the maintenance of it, right? You'll start to see kind of why the three words are in 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 my title, um, and kind of covers. What I think of my mandate, uh, and you know, in the organization, largely focused around finding those opportunities to continue to innovate, build new products. Um, you know, uh, what I like to call uh, place smaller bets uh, on a variety of things um, and you know capabilities, and then see what sticks and get that early kind of customer feedback. Build that uh, what I call transition into commercializing this into a BAU product because. The, you know, where I think organizations tend to fall down is when you have, um, you know, a team that's focused on innovation that sits away from your product organization or sits under, under a different, um, you know, group under a different part of the organization, that handoff process from a early stage pilot proof of concept to a, how are we going to mature this capability and move it from an MVP to a you know sustainable growth product and commercialize it well, that handoff is so critical. And kind of keeping that continuum has been a big focus of ours. And so it's a natural progression of when you move from innovation to pure product management. And you know, it's kind of like moving products through the conveyor belt a little bit. And then the last part part around services is um, that customer experience around onboarding the, um, you know, what we like to call the end-to-end journey, right, for, for, the, for the product um, is, especially in the, in the small business commercial bank space, so, so critical. Like you could have the best product. If you haven't implemented well, if you have a clunky process to get it set up and onboarded, um, there's no point. And so for us, what's really critical is that servicing component, which is the onboarding implementation, day-to-day servicing of the product fits into that uh, conveyor belt strategy for us is uh, is part of the reason why you see those three words in my title. Well, that is a life cycle within product that you would say that's how the software industry has approached it for a long time. But historically, you've given me so much to respond to here. You know, banks do not do well with product. We think of product as you know pricing and kind of the packaging and what the structure looks like. And as you said, it gets thrown off then, you know, after that air quotes product manager, which has really just kind of determined that pricing thing, kind of throws it over to delivery, which leads to that clunkiness that, you know, you you talked about because it wasn't holistically thought about as the entire experience. I'd love to hear your thoughts more on how do we think as financial institutions holistically around experience and make that transition and what's been your path to maturation around that? Yeah. So for us, um, you know, one of the things that we're spending a lot of time on and we have like, de- and it's not time at the side of somebody's desk. It's like dedicated resources 
uh, and capacity is even before you've got something live in the market, what's that journey, right? And so how is the customer going to potentially engage with you? What are they going to, you know, what yeah, it's almost like kind of building that prototype of, of, of that journey um, and asking ourselves those tough questions of, do we really understand what problem we're trying to solve for? What are we, you know, helping that experience inform that early stage MVP? And then, you know, I'm thinking through that, that life cycle of, well, when you have the product and how are you going to deliver and execute on it? Like, to me, these are not, it's just a natural, I'd say, life cycle. And I, and I do agree. I think where organizations tend to falter uh, has been, you kind of think of a, a specific component of that journey versus looking at it end to end. And so for us, the maturation has really been around having dedicated people um, understanding, right, what need are we looking to accomplish and how is that going to translate into people touching that product across the organization from start to finish? Um, because that's just so critical for us. Well, th- let's pull on that for a second, because broadly in innovation, regardless of what industry you're in, getting into your customers' heads to understand the pains, gains, jobs to be done is really hard. Financial services is even harder because so often customers can only respond to what they know. What have you developed around a process and what kind of talent do you bring in to go really understand kind of that first order, that first principle, you know, aspect of the job to be done? Yeah. So, well, um, uh, the the whole jobs to be done theory is incredibly uh, insightful. And, you know, we'd like to believe that Um, we understand what the customer is trying to accomplish versus finding a solution uh, that's looking for a problem, right? Uh, And I think that's where that that customer journey component is so incredible for us. I also would highlight the journeys um, vary by segment, by client size, by the the vertical that they're in, right? And uh, I think it's really important for us to identify what is that priority segment across our business that we are going to invest in doing that early stage evaluation? Um, the second thing, which I think we still have more opportunity, I wouldn't call like call uh, call it a, a pure success here. I think there's more work for us to be done is on the what kind of talent do we attract to build that out? And historically, Right. You kind of said this in your earlier comment that banks tend to think about product management as pricing largely. There's lesser uh, or there's um, less innovation happening. I think what we're trying, we think of ourselves as like a product organization, which means, you know, what skills do you need to be successful as a product organization? And some of that is, you know, built um, hiring people who lead with kind of design thinking principles and kind of have that design thinking mindset. Um, you know, so, you know, whether you're building a product in, you know, the aerospace vertical or, you know, consumer goods, um, to me, the principle of starting to, to really define what that experience and design is going to look like upfront. Uh, and design is not like what you just, you know, what you, what you experience kind of visually design to me is a lot around the experience that you're, developing. So that's where we're leading in on Jason. I don't, I wouldn't say like we're got, we've gotten to a point where we've completely solved it. And, uh, but I, but I'll say, you know, as we look at new platforms and new experiences, um, one of the first things we did is we got some of the best designers, like product designers to start with like day one. So we, we started with a blank sheet of paper and really started with that research to say, okay, how, what, how do we think about that experience? Uh, and why is it important? And get that kind of customer feedback and insight in. And, and feedback's a pretty loose term. Everybody likes to use it. It's it's less about like feedback. It's it's more around putting yourself in the customer's shoes, watching how they operate and run their business, mm-hmm. and letting that inform what are those natural places where you're you're going to build solutions that are going to be effective. So, you know, I I, I I use the term feedback loosely. I think it's really going back to that that customer journey. Well, in you know, one of the benefits you have a lot of resources that allow you to go do this discovery in the time. 
but you also are hamstrung's maybe not quite the right word, but you have the challenge, which is you are doing this at a scale when you go actually deploy something, right? It's not like you can just throw a couple more bodies at something if it actually works. So how do you think about that transition on the escalator of product you were describing from the, let's go build the MVP, let's turn it to product, but now we actually have to like fully scale and commercialize this. Yeah, and that's, um, like I'll tell you, when you think about innovation, um, and I'm preaching to the choir with, with the audience probably, like that's that's the, the, the million dollar question here, right? That scalability is so hard and it's, it's tough to get it right because you, um, you need to bring all aspects of the organization together and make it a priority. Like this can't be product's priority, but it's not sales priority or it's not marketing priority or it's not, you know, you don't, you, your risk partners have a different opinion about it. So mm. when I think about scalability of an idea, into a product, a commercially viable product, it is, um, it's telling the story to the organization of why this is important and getting the organization excited about it. It is bringing people right at the table that are solution oriented mm -hmm. versus order takers, right? And it is like, I mean, religiously following up, sticking to timelines, you know, holding people accountable with clear milestones and delivery. So there's a very, very strong execution focus that I think people don't always appreciate, especially, you know, as you think about, hey, we want to, you know, you, I, I've seen organizations where you have like an innovation shop and then you have a product shop. And the innovation folks think they've got the hardest job to do because, you know, hey, we got to come up with a new idea. And the product people think, well, we got the hardest job to do. Um, that transition to me, I think, is uh, is critical and, and just requires deep execution rigor. Well, in, it also feels like it needs some cultural changes in terms of how people work together in those mindsets. We can't all have the the most difficult job, you know. Here, I'm curious along those lines. Where do you look for inspiration? Is it fintechs, other banks outside of the industry? You know, how have you developed this? You know, philosophy of how these pieces fit together. Um, for me, inspiration um, it comes from a lot of different places. I think it comes from it definitely comes from kind of within the banking sector, and uh, you know, to kind of witness. Um, what some of the, uh, you know, whether it's kind of here internally or just, you know, take a small idea and what makes something click and what made a product, you know, really successful. Mm -hmm. um, it comes with, uh, I, I look to, I look for inspiration with, uh, with fintechs, with big tech companies, uh, you know, in general, I think um, I like to think of ourselves as, uh, you know, banks, uh, you know, traditionally kind of haven't been positioned as product companies, but that's kind of who we are. Like we're, we're product companies with a lot of regulation. Um, and, 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 you know, and I think about a good product company is always iterating on products is sometimes uh, more often than not creating and building new services and is sometimes exiting and sunsetting services because, you know, the, the industry's moved on. And I think technology companies tend to do that a lot more rapidly than, you know, traditionally financial institutions tend to do. And then I also, to be honest with you, look for inspiration um, outside of banking and fintech and, you know, other industries, uh, whether it's healthcare, there's a lot of uh, innovation happening in that space. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, you know, it's also, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a daughter of a diplomat, kind of have a very different background, never thought I'd be in banking, but here I am. Um, you know, big into um, even, you know, inspiration comes to me with even what's happening in the world and, you know, what are other strong leaders doing um, to kind of set that right example around motivating teams, you know, building followership and, you know, uh, you know, creating momentum around change. That's a big uh, place where I derive inspiration. It has nothing to do with my day job, uh, but as I think about leadership principles and you know, what works and what clicks in this day and age. Um, you know, those are some things that I think are uh, truly inspiring as well. Well, one of the things as we begin to wrap up that you said that made me think in a lot of these other industries, they tend to evolve their strategies a lot more quickly. And in some regards, you could look back 
and say the strategy in banking is hundreds, if not thousands of years old in terms of what we do and how we do it. Um, you know, some of the tactics have changed, but the strategy is largely take in deposits on one end at one price and lend them out, you know, at a higher price by and large, right? And we wrap some payments around it. But how do you future-proof your strategy in a world that's beginning to evolve much more quickly than those of us in regulated entities often can respond? Yeah, I think it's twofold. So all of what you said is is largely true, but I think how we evolve and continue to stay incredibly relevant. Um, one is, you know, especially in my business, I think it's it's really true. It's definitely the like deposits are important. You know, credit's incredibly important. Um, but it's in transaction banking, right? You're also fulfilling a uh, you're optimizing business processes. So you're a, you're a service provider. Yeah. And you're doing that by, you know, helping your customer who could be, you know, a CFO, a treasurer, um, you know, shift kind of how they think about their roles in the company by optimizing, you know, the way they interact with their customers. So if if we start to think of banks as, as, you know, the strategy that's been in place, plus you're now providing services to, you know, uh, change the model on how businesses, you know, Make money, interact, find new, you know, new uh, new markets and and new customers. To me, that's I think how financial services evolves, and it's specific, especially true, I should say, in, in transaction banking or cash management. And then, you know, just kind of um, off the heels of that is, um, you know, building the building an ecosystem of capabilities that traditionally was not always seen as true banking, and you're seeing that in every single vertical. Like again, whether you know. Um, whether it's your gaming industry, you know, the restaurant franchise industry, uh, healthcare, like everyone's doing something that hasn't traditionally, you know, been viewed as their core competency and kind of getting into the, the adjacencies to build out ecosystems, to keep the customer within that experience. And I think banking's no different. So, you know, whether it's, you know, hey, for a small business client, we're going to build out those adjacencies and and, and help businesses, you know, uh, just be more effective in running their day-to-day operations. And then some, right, because they bank with TD Bank, that's, um, you know, that's motivation and, and something that uh, that we think is, is going to be a key, a key driver of, of, of relationship depth, of stickiness, of growth. And, and so um, I'd say those are the two things outside of the traditional model that I'm pretty bullish on. Joe, you left us with some really powerful points, this idea of we have to think outside of the bank and begin to develop the ecosystem into the adjacencies. And there's so much blurring going on. I mean, this could be an entire another episode around that, which I know we don't have time for, but thank you for taking time out of your day to share your product vision and the evolution that TD Bank has been going through. Welcome to The Futurist, where your hosts, Brett King and Robert Tersek, interview the world's foremost super forecasters, thought leaders, technologists, entrepreneurs, and futurists building the world of tomorrow. Our guests include Kevin J. Anderson, a New York Times bestselling author that worked on the Oscar-winning Dune movie, Andrew Hessel, synthetic biologist and author of The Genesis Machine, and Dr. Harry Clore of Beyond Imagination, the company behind robot avatars like Bayamni, one of the most sophisticated general purpose humanoid robots on the planet. Together, we will explore how our world will be radically changed over the coming years. AI, bioscience and gene therapy, renewable energy and battery technology, food and agriculture advances, computing, the metaverse, the space industry, crypto, resource management, supply chain automation, and climate change will all reshape our world over the next 100 years. Join us on The Futurist to explore what's coming next, and we will see you in the future. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. 
During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. The world of venture capital is competitive and fast-paced, and that made it the perfect field for Jillian Williams. A lifelong New Yorker, a runner, and the daughter of bankers, Jillian has finance in her blood. Jillian has a unique perspective on the industry. We'll dig into some of those perspectives and let ourselves fall into some of the intellectual rabbit holes capturing Jillian's attention today. Hey, hey, Amber Buecher here, your host, coming at you live today from Lithix headquarters in New York City, where I'm currently squatting and taking up office space. So thanks to Lithic for letting me do that um, so that we could come to you and record this session with Jillian Williams. So um, Jillian, it is so great to have you. How are you doing today? Doing great, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, I'm super excited for this conversation um, because Jillian and I met through the FinTech Girl Gang. If you haven't heard, it's a it's a whole thing. And we'll definitely dig into that later on. But to start, Jillian, I'd love to just kind of walk listeners through a little bit of your background. Obviously, you've had a, an amazing path, but um, would love to start a little further back than what you might be used to and hear a little bit about where you grew up and what young Jillian was like. Absolutely. Um, so I grew up in New York City, so born and raised, have not really left for very, other than for college, have not really left. Um, and uh, so like, I guess I kind of started off sort of probably knowing that I was going to be in some form of finance only because my parents had some crazy idea to start an investment bank basically when I was born. Um, so I grew up basically like in their office while they'd be working on weekends and then like at the dinner table while they were talking about everything relating to them starting a bank 24-7. Um, and so my brother and I were kind of subject to all things ins and outs of what it was like to start an investment bank um, from a very early age. Um, so I think, yeah, I feel like with that, you either go one or two ways. I think you either run as far as you can away from finance um, or you just kind Kind of fall in love with it. And I think for some crazy reason, I kind of really fell in love with it. Um, and so I definitely kind of was going down that path. Um, on the side, I was also an avid runner. Um, so I was hyper competitive. Um, I think I, I was the only girl in my family. And so I was, and also I was the youngest, um, including like all my cousins. And so I was very much this tomboy trying to fight for my, my space <laughs> in our family. And so I was always kind of trying to see if I could beat up or do something to any of the guys in my family. And I figured out that I could just be faster than the rest of them. Um, so I could kind of do something and then run away and that would work. <laughs> um, and so I used that to my advantage and uh, became a runner. Um, and so then ended up going to Yale um, and studied economics there, ended up going into investment banking. It was at Barclays uh, where I was in the financial institutions group um, and then kind of used that to, it was at a time where they were kind of starting to think about fintech a lot more and where that should sit within the bank. Um, and then that was really kind of how I got my start within fintech um, investing and, and uh, venture capital. That is a great story. I love so many things about that story. I'm curious how that kind of competitive nature may have helped you in your career aspirations. Yeah, I think, I mean, it definitely has, especially, I think, especially within venture. Um, I think like it's, it's such an interesting, uh, such an interesting job where it's one where you're very, 
you're very collaborative with people, but at the same time, like when you're putting down a term sheet versus other people, like you have to figure out how can I win? Like, what am I doing to make sure that this founder is picking me over however many other of my peers that they're getting offers from? Um, and so you definitely have to think about like, what's my angle? Why me? Like, what can I do better than others? And I think for me, oftentimes I think about it, especially when I might be more junior than some of the other people. It's like, how can I just like figure out what my hustle is? Like, how can I show them that I am going to do whatever I can to support them, that I can make these introductions, that I can find them that hire, that I can find them that BD person, that I can make that intro to that customer to them. Um, and so I think that kind of like competitive nature to get in front of founders, to hopefully get them to choose me, to um, to to really just like be as supportive as I possibly can definitely kind of comes across within within what I do as well. And so I think that's kind of honestly needed within the venture space just because it is such a, um, at some point, like such a like one for one type job, even if you're, even though you're part of a team within a fund, um, at the end of the day, when you're kind of like going for a deal, it's like, yes, they're choosing the fund, but also at some point they might be choosing the person as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I, I wanted to dig into what your transition from kind of traditional finance into venture was like and what drew you into the space. Absolutely. So while I was at Barclays, I just kind of started to think quite a bit around like what was fintech. Um, as I said, it was part of like what the bank was thinking quite about. Uh, I think Barclays has actually done a very good job. They had um, at this time, they already had their Barclays Tech Stars program. However, we didn't really know about it at the bank at the time. Um, and so it was really kind of a, like, all right, from the traditional finance point of view, like, what is happening within FinTech? Like, what should we be thinking about? Because I think, like, especially as an analyst, I would have to do a run every single week of, like, what was happening within the different sectors of um the FIG group, and I'm pretty sure for like the fintech sector, the only two companies we had in that were um, Lending Club and On Deck. So like what we considered to be fintech was pretty, pretty minuscule at that point. And so we really just started to think about, okay, if this is a growing sector, like what else should we be thinking about? Who else should be in it? And what are some of the opportunities coming up? And so that sort of forward thinking was something that was really interesting to me. Um, and something I really latched on to just be like, okay, who should I be talking to that's kind of really thinking about this? And so I personally started talking to first the like later stage companies. So like people at PayPal, people at Square, and just understanding how they were thinking about it and then kind of use that to keep catapulting going earlier. Um, and I think I actually didn't mind investment banking. I think I'm probably one of the few people that like kind of like the job, but I think I kind of probably what I didn't like was missing that human component. I very much glorified the idea of like the IPO where it was like, you get to be part of this incredible moment of this company's time, uh, whether it's the founder or CEO, like it's the best point in time for the company, but it's so transactional at that point um, that I realized what I was missing was kind of that earlier point in time in the company where you really get to be part of like the growth and getting to that point in time and really having that relationship. And so when I started just kind of talking to founders, talking to operators, and then ultimately talking to some funds, I, I ended up meeting uh, one of the founders of, of Anthemis. And as we were talking about kind of their focus within the market, how they work with founders, and then ultimately um, the fund specifically, I was just like, this is it. Like it kind of mixes that ability to kind of be on the financial side, but also really have that human element and really working with founders at the earliest stage. And so that was really kind of what catapulted me to realize that like venture was really what was exciting to me. Awesome. And within venture, obviously a fintech focus, as we've been noting, I'm curious, what about fintech specifically is um, interesting, exciting, weird, um, something a little bit different to you and, and, and how that informs your focus on the segment? Absolutely. I'll be completely candid. When I first joined, like joined into the fintech world, I definitely wasn't like, oh my God, I love fintech. And this is the <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. It was one of those things where, like I knew probably more than the average person, especially at my age about it, because like I understood how like reinsurance worked. And I understood a lot of how like the financial side of it worked. Um, that like when I had conversations with founders, like 
they didn't need to explain that first step of it to me so we could skip over some of it. So like, it was something that I just had an understanding of. So I had, so it was easier for me. Um, but it was definitely not something where I was like, oh my God, I love this. And honestly, at that time, like fintech wasn't as like sexy as it is now. So I remember, and it was actually then that there was like five of us, especially women in VC in New York that focused on fintech. And like, we would go to like the broader VC of networking events. And like, we would tell people that we focused on fintech and like, no one really cared to speak to us. Honestly. <laughs> like, fintech was not cool. No one really cared about it. And it was like, oh, you focus on fintech. All right, cool. Next person. And I was like, yep. All right, great. And so like, it's just so funny how much it's changed. Um, and then I just remember, and I don't really know when it was where this like light bulb went off where I was like, I think talking to just a friend outside of venture and us talking about some company that I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited about this insurance company that's doing X, Y, and Z and like it's back office. And like, I was going on and on probably about the most boring company <laughs> in the entire world. And they were just like, seriously, Julian, like this is what's exciting to you. And I found it was like, oh yeah, I guess like even the most boring FinTech company is something that like I get super excited about. And I think that was when it like kind of hit me that like, oh, I do really love FinTech. <laughs> and like, I can get very excited about these like really unsexy things within the FinTech industry. Um, and I think for me, it's really just like, it touches so many aspects that you like, we don't even realize it. And there's so many different ways that it's impactful, whether it is like insurance or it's really just like, movement of money. And it's, I think also something where it's still so antiquated in ways that we don't even realize. Like if you think about a company like Stripe that basically powers so much of like online payments has not been around for that long, but like we think about online payments probably like been around for a lot longer. Like what was really happening before that? Like, how was that getting done before that? And like, yet like it has improved it exponentially. And so just realizing how much more work can be done constantly is such an, like, is such a cool feature to, to the world or even something like Shopify where it's like, yeah, we've been buying things online for a while, but like Shopify can come around and really revolutionize like how people can sell online and how we continue to shop online. Um, and so I think things like that just like continue to get me excited about fintech and where it's heading. That's awesome. That exponential growth is definitely really exciting and enticing, obviously, for someone in your space. So I want to talk a little bit about Cowboy Ventures, the team that you're a part of now. Super cool name. Um, I think that there's a really weird story behind that name that's on the website if you guys want to read it. Um, but, I, you know, one thing that I love about the brand that you guys have at Cowboy is that it's this like adventuring you know, westward looking idea that it kind of invokes. And so I'm curious about how that spirit um, kind of works its way through your decision making process as you're looking for these potentially exponential opportunities. Absolutely. I think the way that we think about kind of like that cowboy spirit is really like just thinking almost towards the possibilities and like almost like that next frontier and what can be possible. So I think we look for obviously what can be massive opportunities and what can be like the next big company, but also oftentimes like what's building new categories, like things that are really category create creators, not just something that's like big because this is a huge pain point and it can fix something that exists today, but doesn't do it well. But like, what is something that like really doesn't exist and that people haven't really thought about and like, it can have like an, it can revolutionize an industry. And so I think that's part of kind of our thought process with like the cowboy name, that cowboy spirit is really like looking forward to that next frontier and like what can be there that we're not even necessarily seeing in that horizon yet um, and what can be built there. And so I think that's something that we always think about as well. And so we look for founders kind of like, of like really we have no necessary like criteria for founders in terms of like what type of background they have. They can be first-time founders, they can be serial entrepreneurs, they can be um any like from anywhere, honestly. Um, but we just like really look for founders that are hungry, that can attract incredible talent. And that I think one criteria that we use all the time when we're talking about founders, like we say like learning animals, like someone who like as we're speaking to them as we do references on them, as we get to know them, like just are constantly learning and constantly trying to 
understand better themselves, figure out where maybe their weak spots are and where they can kind of continue to fill those holes, fill those gaps, whether it's themselves or with other people. Um, And so I think that's really how we think about um, who and what we're investing into. I hear that a lot from VCs that they, it's so important who that founder is and what the connection with that founder is. Like, you know, even more than some of the, you know, financials or the business model or whatever, like, you have to find someone in the in a founder that you can believe in, I think is the general consensus. Yeah, no, exactly. Cause I think it's one of those things where I mean I feel like the like thing that people always say is it's like you look at the founder market and product and like it's probably the market. I mean it's probably the founder, then the market and product. And I think like arguably that it all is true. It's like the founder you you can technically change it at some point, but like, <laughs> yes, the hardest to change and the most disruptive to change and the yeah. worst to change. Like you are really backing this person's idea and really, especially because we go so early, like we go pre-seed, seed, like majority of the time when we're investing, it's pre-product, majority of the time it's pre-revenue. Um, and so we're really backing this person's or multiple people's vision in terms of, where they think it can go and who they think they can bring around the table really to, to build this. And so I think that's honestly the most important. And then it's really making sure that like in terms of market, like that they're building a real solution that has a problem. I think sometimes a challenge that we see is like, it can be an incredible founder, but like the solution that they're building doesn't have a problem Um, or the problems like so minuscule that, no one necessarily cares enough. Like, yeah, sure, this can make my life a little bit better, but am I really going to change a behavior or spend X amount of money or something to make my life like slightly better versus exponentially better? Um, And so I think that's why sometimes like that product matters a little bit less versus it's really like, okay, this market matters because like, yes, this this problem is like glaring and like people are really in need of a solution or businesses are really in need of a solution or whoever the end customer is, is really in need of some sort of a solution. Yeah. So thinking about problems, solutions, exponential opportunities, new frontiers, what rabbit holes have you been falling down lately? I think one of the rabbit holes, and this has been one I've been like, honestly, in and out of for a while, um, has really been within like the overall debt market. And I guess it's like kind of the debt market and then like how like buy now, pay later kind of goes into that as well. And the way I think about it is I started thinking about it kind of like prior to COVID because like the savings rate was at like one of the lowest in the US prior to that. And the level of debt, personal debt, and of even not really thinking about like student loan debt um, was at like the highest. And many of the credit cards were like, ex- credit card companies were expecting um, high levels of default that year, basically. Like they were expecting like March and April to be pretty high in terms of default because of how high levels of debt were. Um, and then all of a sudden COVID hit. And obviously given all of the government uh, interventions, all of a sudden the savings rate skyrocketed to like levels as high as they've ever been since like World War II um, and really changed that trajectory quite a bit. Um, But then all of a sudden, we're like completely reversing that and that debt is rising extremely quickly again. And we're seeing like the rate at which credit cards or applications are coming out, like being exponentially faster than people predicted. Um, Plus, we're seeing a lot of volatility and uncertainty in the financial markets and not necessarily, and people aren't really sure what's happening. Like, are we going to recession? We don't necessarily know. Um, And then I think we have on top of that, this uncertainty around like how buy now, pay later fits into this picture in terms of debt. I think I'm personally a fan of the fact that now, like the credit bureaus have announced that they are going to start reporting that because I think for a while it was this weird thing that like, some people saw his debt, some people didn't, even though it clearly is, that was like not showing up on your financial picture, even though it w- it was debt. And so for me, it's one of those things where like, if we were to have some sort of a big recession where consumers really could not pay off debt, what would be the first thing that people paid off? I think in the financial crisis, the thought process was like, with car loans, for example, 
people were always going to pay those off because they needed them to get to work. People weren't going to pay off their homes because like, okay, you're not going to pay off your home, but you're always <laughs> going to need a vehicle to get to work. You're going to sleep in your car. That's fine. Yeah. How do people really think about other types of debt? How would people think about like buy now, pay later debt? Like where does that fit in that like sort of hierarchy of how people think about payment? And so, so as you can tell, I don't have great answers. It's just one of those rabbit holes that I kind of continue to think about and continue to worry about in terms of like, this debt kind of continues to rack up. And I feel like we had this kind of false reprieve for a year and a half, two years um, that I don't necessarily think um, is going away. And I think it's going to kind of continue getting worse. Well, I think that's the whole point of a rabbit hole is that you don't have answers. You're just constantly tripping in the rabbit hole. But it brings up this interesting idea of being able to predict something like which debt people will pay off first and how those how that they'll prioritize that. Because you know, so much of you know market speculation and and venture is like being able to game out what people may or may not do. And so I'm curious if you've got any frameworks or research strategies that you use to help you make sense of that. Honestly, I don't at this point. It's one of those things that I kind of continue to think about, but if I had to guess, given, I mean, the average this is probably a little bit of still data, but I, pro- I assume it's probably not that different than it was six months ago. The average product that people are buying using some of these buy now, pay later costs like $50 or something like that. So I have to assume that like if someone really had to choose what they were going to pay off first, do they want to keep getting access to these buy now, pay later products or do they want to keep getting access to a credit card? I think I'd probably say the credit card, but actually, like, I, I don't know. Maybe, like, I would assume that they maybe would let some of these small things go and then pay some of them off. I would, ass- but again, I, maybe I am not, maybe I'm not sure. Maybe they actually value the sort of installment loans more than anything and that they'd rather continue to get access to something like a firm over the long term versus getting access to credit. If it were me, I'd probably <laughs> weigh paying off my credit card more than anything, but not quite sure what what everybody would think of that. Yeah. It's um I mean you almost have to have a degree in in design and like human centered design and things like that to figure out some of these uh burning questions. And the best that we can probably do is figure out what I would do if I were in that situation, I guess, and try to put yourself in other people's shoes as much as you can. Um so I'm you know you brought up the credit bureaus reporting on BNPL, which is you know kind of a a pretty big shift for a large incumbent like that. So I'm curious what other sorts of regulatory or broader banking trends you're thinking about and that you think fintech founders should be thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I think the two overall topics that kind of come to mind for me, one is definitely around like, how does the change in the macroeconomic environment um, due to the shift in interest rates, like, what does that mean for fintechs versus banks? Like, how does that impact our, like, fintechs? Because um, I think that clearly does change some of the value proposition a little bit. I think in some ways that can actually benefit them. I think, like, right before a huge drop in rates in, like, 2018, 20, yeah, 2018, 2019, um, we saw a lot of these, like, high yield checking accounts, high yield savings accounts that had all popped up on like Betterment, Wealthfront, et cetera. Um, and then obviously and Marcus, et cetera, that all like then went to basically zero quickly. So like those propositions will do a lot better, but there's obviously other ones that like are n- never really going to compete with banks and like higher interest rates probably benefit the banks a lot more than fintech companies. And so kind of what does that really mean longer term for these fintechs. And so I think that's definitely a question that we haven't really had to deal with um, over the last 10 years, because we haven't really been in a rising rate environment. Um, However, I think, again, there's still so much uncertainty in this market that like, are we truly in a rising rate environment? Not quite sure, Um, rather than like one-off increases in rates. I think the other is, um, and it more so impacts fintechs, is increase in um fraud uh so i mean we've seen like a huge increase in like wire fraud but also really around like 
some of the neobanks for like Chime and Current. And the fact that we're seeing an increase of merchants just kind of like block these uh, challenger banks from being able to be, be used at, like as customers. And I think that does a lot of damage because I think obviously so one of the propositions is that these banks can kind of be an alternative to the large banks and democratize access because obviously they often can be a lot, lot cheaper in terms of low fees, but also support people where they're in banking deserts, et cetera. But the fact that then it could be someone's main bank account and then all of a sudden they can't actually be used at like a Hertz or to rent a car mm-hmm. anywhere and things like that, then that really hurts someone's access to actually being able to access their money or to use their bank account in general. And so what are kind of the solves for that? And how do we think about kind of getting around that? And I think that's kind of a really big issue that we're starting to see increasingly often. For sure. And I, you know, your comment about some of the macroeconomic trends, I think that we have a glut of fintech companies that have never been through a down cycle and we're about to figure out, you know, who can survive and and who's built for that because the market is cyclical, right? You're always going to have a a downturn at some point. Absolutely. I think that's completely true. We have seen, we have had quite a number of them that have never seen it. And I think it will be interesting to see how they, how they react both in terms of like the actual businesses, but also how the founders react. Because I think even in some of the blips of volatility we've seen some decision making that has not been great in the past um and i think we will see what happens when it's a little bit more sustained um that will be will be telling well you know speaking of like decision making in fintechs you've had a large number of board observer roles at companies like maxwell and happy money i love happy money by the way so shout out to my friends there um what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned from those roles i mean all of them are so different honestly um whether it's stage like different dynamics i think for me one of the best learnings is kind of being able to take the different learnings from every company and then understanding like the different scenarios of how things play out and then being able to use that and honestly, like just apply it to every, every company. Um, I think honestly, probably across the board with every company, I think that I've worked with, it's really understanding like the founder and relationship dynamics. That's really important. Um, Cause I think especially at the earliest stage, that's where it can be hardest for, companies is if there is a lot of tension or something going on between founders, it kind of needs to be figured out pretty quickly because that can in turn stall the business. Um, And so I think having as transparent of a relationship between founders, between the investors and founders is really important because otherwise I think it can kind of really just harm the business, even if it's something that can be seem very, very small. Um, but I think that can really, really have ripple effects throughout the company because it honestly can, it's like people say it's a lot, but it's almost like a marriage between the two founders. Like you're extremely tied financially. You work together every single day. Um, so obviously there's always going to be some sort of times where you don't agree, et cetera, but making sure that things don't escalate. And I think founders can be like that founder mentality can be very, very lonely, whether or not you have co-founders and just making sure that you have the right outlets and have that right support um, is extremely important. Um, And so, and making sure that you're kind of dealing with any challenges that come up uh, properly. So like, honestly, like recommend most founders like getting coaches or even sometimes like getting like coaches for the founders and making sure that they have the right communication and know how to like how decisions are made, like who the buck necessarily stops with for what decisions pretty early on, because otherwise I think that can be a really big challenge. That's great advice. And it's not something that I've heard from other folks as much on, on that coaching aspect. You brought up the idea of having support and community. And so one of the things I wanted to end on was um, going back to how we know each other through this <laughs> 
fintech girl gang that has is getting quite a reputation. Um, because I think, you know, it was really interesting when you were telling me a little bit of your origin story early, you said there was, it was you and this group of like five women who were really into fintech and, um, you know, it was a, a little bit different situation, but still like kind of banding together with other women in the space. And then I think you were also a part of the the venture studio partnership with Anthemis and Barclays mm-hmm. that supports female founders. So just curious to get your take on women in this space, um, you know, how we can support one another best. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think honestly, it's around having these communities. Like I think like similarly men have always had these communities as well. And so it's just, and that's not saying like making things exclusive. And I think always like having male counterpoints, um, like, and other people to communicate with, I think is also extremely important and male allies, et cetera, is extremely important, but also having people that understand like what you're going through as a woman is very important as well. And that there are things that will happen to you based off of your gender, based off of whatever, describes you and so being able to have like something like this girl this fintech girl gang i think is very important to be able to discuss like hey x y and z happened to me because i am a woman in fintech and being able to like share that and have a community to have those discussions i think is very very important um and sometimes it's like to go for advice sometimes it's just like hey i need to get this off my uh, off my chest with like a safe community and with people that will actually understand uh and not try to like push back and be like oh that didn't happen because of that like someone will just be like yeah we're really sorry that happened like that sucks like here's how i've dealt with it or just be like another a voice to hear it and so i do think like just having these communities um, and having people to go to is extremely, extremely valuable just for like, honestly, like mental health <laughs> and getting. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, i count myself very lucky to have you a part of my community. Um, and so thank you so much for coming on the show. I think that's a great note to end on, unless there's something that you wish I had asked you. No, this was terrific. Thank you so much, Amber. And appreciate you having me. And I love being part of the FinTech Girl Gang with you. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jillian. Uh, Where can folks find you if they want to learn more about your work? Absolutely. You can find me um, on our Cowboy website, which is cowboy.vc. You can find me on Twitter, which is jillwillnyc. Jillwillnyc. I love it. All right. Well, thanks so much. Until next time. All right. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.